So that's what today is about. But before I jump into that, I want to preach just a short, I always say that every Christmas, I want you to know my heart. Every Christmas I set out to just put together a very short devotional message. And so I thought I had one and then it, it wasn't. And so I'm going to try again to preach a very short devotional message. And then we as a church who are prepared to give, we're going to bring our offering to God um, and just trust him. And, and, and I think I told you this last week, but people are like, you can't ask people to give. And that's what I told God when God's like, I want you to take a miracle offering on this weekend. I'm like, it's the weekend before Christmas. And he's like, I'm aware. It's weird how he's aware of things like that. And, and even this message, I started writing this message before I knew what we were doing. And then it fit great with what we were doing. And I was like, God, it's as though you already knew before I did. And, and so, um, but, but anyways, I can't remember what I was going to say, but it's a great message. I'm going to try to do it quickly. We're going to trust God together. And, um, and just, oh, I was going to say, give. I can't ask people. That's what I told God. I said, I can't ask people to give a miracle offering at Christmas. Like, that's not even, that's unconstitutional. I don't even know if that's biblical. And they reminded me in my sermon because I'm preaching on the wise men who brought their treasures to Jesus. I'm like, yeah, I, guess, I guess it's biblical. It's in all of our nativity scenes. Anyways, all right, let's jump into God's word together and I will try to make this quick and painless and fun. All right. Matthew 2 verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came from Jerusalem saying, uh, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it arose, and we've come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all of the chief priests and scribes and, and, and the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, this is Micah, after, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." And so Herod, Herod, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent to them Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him, which we know he was so lying in that. But anyways, after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it arose went before him, uh, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down. You could underline that and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, one version says treasury, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. One child said gold, frankensteins, and smurfs. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way, by another way. Um, I called this message, um, how do you respond? How do you respond? How do I respond? How do you respond? I'll explain that after I pray. Father, today we have gathered to celebrate the giving of the greatest gift that has ever been given. God, let us, let us focus our hearts and our attention on that, on him, on the king of every king, the Lord of every Lord, the savior of the world. Now, God, by your Holy Spirit, speak words of life to our hearts that would change us forever. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, 
Amen. Um, so there's an anxiety. It's actually classifiable that I learned about. It's called gift giving anxiety, gift giving anxiety. It's uh, it's and you may have it. I don't know. But it's where you get anxious about giving gifts and you're worried that whatever you get won't be good enough or they won't like it or to be the wrong thing or the wrong size. And, and you can get worried that that if you give a gift, there might be a judgment or assessment made about you. Like, who are they to give this? And why didn't they? Why did they give this? And why didn't they give that? And and so it's this thing called gift giving anxiety. Now, I don't have gift giving anxiety. I do not get anxious about giving gifts. Um, gifts are not my love language. So I, I don't, it's, I, it's, it's not the thing that, that really speaks to me, right? And in fact, if you're, you know, for me to give a gift, I love to give a gift. I like to give a gift that I know you want. It makes me happy if you'll just tell me straight up what you want and let me give it to you. And then I'll be happy and you'll be happy. And no one has any anxiety whatsoever. I, and, and, and I'm kind of the same way. I, I, don't, I, I don't have any anxiety about giving gifts, but I found out I do have gift-getting anxiety. I have anxiety about getting gifts. I discovered this when I was 10 years old. When I was 10 years old, I had a grandmother that was so concerned that any of her grandchildren might possibly go through life and run out of foundational garments. And she was concerned that there would be a day where we would have no underwear or socks. And so she found a way every Christmas to give us underwear and socks. And I remember one particular Christmas that I knew she was giving us a remote control car. I knew that. I had a way of tricking my mother who's in the service, but I had a way of always tricking her so I could find out what it was I was getting so I didn't have to be anxious about getting it. She thought I was just being like, you know, mischievous. I was just trying to keep anxiety low. Right? I have a daughter who's this way. <laughs> and, so, and so anyways, I, I knew that I was getting a remote control car from Granny. But there was another gift, and I didn't know what was in there, and that, made, that, that stressed me out because I don't know how to react. How do I respond to this gift? And I opened it up, tear it open, because I'm like, maybe it's something good. I opened it up, and it's Fruit of the Looms and a John Wayne VHS tape. <laughs> and I thought, how do I respond? As a 10-year-old, I don't even worry about underwear. You can get four uses out of one pair if you know how to turn them around and inside out and all of that. So I was like, Granny, this is great. Underwear. That's what I was thinking about. So I found that I have gift getting anxiety and I always think when I'm opening something like, how am I supposed to respond? Like I actually think about that because I don't like being surprised. It's a weird thing about me. Like, like when Julie's buying me a gift for Christmas gift, I'm like, how about I just put it in the Amazon shopping cart, whatever I want, and you just go prime that thing back to me. We're good. I know what's coming. Then I don't have to wonder, how do I respond to this gift? And when I read the text, I saw the greatest gift that had ever been given. And I seen, I saw a, I seen a, now, you know, I'm texting. I saw a response by the wise men to the gift. And then I thought, what other responses could I find to this gift? And I actually found three different responses. That's not my point, but it's, it's the introduction because I really want to look at the wise men. But, but the response that I saw was I saw Herod's response and the shepherd's response and then the Magi's response, or the wise men. And I thought, these responses are indicative of what I've seen as a pastor. 
as people are responding and have responded to what I would call the greatest gift that's ever been given. Let me show you what I mean. First of all, you have Herod's response. Now, Herod was known as Herod the Great. Um, he, he was known as Herod the Great because he decided that his name would be called Herod the Great. And if you disagreed, he'd kill you. And so, so that's how he came. He actually took over from Antipur. That was his father. Um, and his father did a favor for Caesar. So that's how Antipur got to be king of the Jews, if you will, because Jews were under Roman rule. And then Herod took over. And Herod, was, he was a ruthless king. Um, he killed two of his oldest sons um, because he didn't want them to take his throne. In fact, one of them he killed on his deathbed. He was going to die literally within days. And his son, it had been rumored, would be a great ruler. So Herod killed him. So he wouldn't be able to take over after he died. He either killed or exiled all of his wives. Although he did write this, his favorite wife, his favorite wife was Miriam. And he, he did say he regretted killing her. And so he was all heart. Um, but... But he, Herod, um, he, he, what drove him was a fear of losing control, a fear of losing control of his own life, of his own kingdom. So any threat to that, and, and, and he was always trying to garner more support. So he built a lot of things, three things that are still standing that he built. Caesarea, which he built and named it Caesarea after Caesar to win, to win favor from Caesar. Uh, Masada, which is a, a spa that he built, essentially. And then the, the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall and the Temple Mount, which was actually a retaining wall because he was expanding the Temple Mount to garner uh, uh, favor, if you will, from, from the Jews. And in fact, there were times when there were famine that, that, that Herod would give out of his treasury to buy food for people who were hungry, not so much that he cared about them, but that he wanted to be known as a great king. It was really all about, he gave selfishly, is what I'm saying. He gave for, for what, what he could get out of it. And, and so he was, he, was, um, he was kind of a tyrant. He was paranoid. One time he killed his servants because he thought they were talking about him. Um, and so, um, in, in fact, when, when he finds out like this, so having said that, let me get to the point. The point is that when Jesus, when the wise men come and they say, where is he who's born king of the Jews? Herod's like, wait a second. I'm king of the Jews. You're telling me there's another one that's been born king of the Jews? So that's why he says, well, where is he at? Because I want to worship him too with a spear. In fact, Herod, this is what ends his death. Herod is known as the massacre of the innocents because he so wanted to, li to, to, rid the, to rid his kingdom of the influence of this other king that when the wise men don't return, he knew the time the star had appeared. We just read it in the text. And he has Jewish boys under the age of two massacred. Now, the truth is, even though it's atrocious to think about, the, the history tells us there were only about 20 to 24 boys that were killed because God, in my opinion, history doesn't say this, but immediately he was struck down with a plague and died five days later. And so I think it was God, in my opinion. But, but this is his paranoia. And, and my thought was, how do we respond? How did Herod respond? Well, Herod responded by acknowledging the king. All of his actions were an acknowledgement that there was another king born. But yet he fought to not surrender his throne to that king. It was for real Game of Thrones. 
Like it could have been an episode on Game of Thrones. Are you with me? And he's like, I am not going to, 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 to run the risk of losing control of my life and my kingdom to that king. And I'm not going to try to get his influence out of my life. And, and I thought, honestly, there are a lot of people like that today that they acknowledge there's a king and they will sing Silent Night around a Christmas tree. But they are, they are living to get his influence out of their life. They are scared to surrender their lives to this king. They want to sit on their, own, the, their, their throne of their life and not surrender to him. And, and maybe they're not murdering. Maybe they're not tyrants. Maybe they're not paranoid. But it's a battle of control. And they are scared to death to yield control. They want to maintain control of their own life. They want to sit on the throne of their own life. And they don't want his influence. And they won't surrender to him. And they, they acknowledge that he's king. But they won't surrender to his reign. And then I thought about the shepherds. And the, don't you love the shepherds? The, the, I mean, this is like the, the birth announcement of God. Like he's, he's sending this angelic choir out, this host, singing glory to God in the highest and honor of peace, goodwill towards men. You know, this is Luke chapter two. And the shepherds say, we've got to go and see what has just happened. And it says they come and they see and they leave rejoicing, giving glory to God. And they even go and tell people about it. But ultimately they go right back to their lives. And I thought, Herod acknowledged the king. The shepherds admired the king. They admired that he was a king, and they even told people about him. And I thought, this time of year, there'll be people that fill Christmas services to say, yes, I, you know, I hadn't been all year, but he's the king, and I wanted to come and admire him because I believe he's the king, and, and, I, and, I, and I know that God sent him, but ultimately, I'm going to go back and live my own life. I, I'm, I'm going to live my way. And then I thought about the Magi. Because the Magi came and they fell down at the feet of Jesus. And I thought they adored him. And I thought, is this not responses that we see today to the King of Kings, to Christmas that some acknowledge, some admire, and, and, and some adore some adore him. And so I want to look at the Magi more closely together. The Magi, um, we first see them in history about the seventh century BC. Um, they, the Magi were actually started by a prophet of God, believe it or not. Um, his name was Balaam. And uh, Balaam was, a, he wasn't the best prophet. He was a prophet for hire. Um, because King Balak of Moab wanted to destroy Israel. So he said, I can't destroy them because God protects them. But if I could get their prophet to prophesy a curse over them, maybe I could destroy them. So he hires Balaam to prophesy over Israel to curse them. But every time Balaam tries to, like he took the money, but because he ain't dumb. But every time he tries to prophesy over them, he prophesies another blessing over them. So this happens like, like four times. In fact, this is how the Magi, this is how they know to look for a star is because of Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 24 that talks about the Messiah coming from Judah and a star arising out of Jacob. So this is what tells them to look for a star. And then you see the Magi again in Daniel. 
because Daniel actually saves the Magi. They, the Magi, the name comes from magic because they did cast some spells. Remember, they're not, they're pagans, right? So, I mean, they're, they're pagans with a good heart. Are you with me? And so, but they're really smart. They're learned in astronomy, astrology, philosophy. I mean, they're just really intelligent. There's this, they're a cast of the Medes from the Medo-Persian empire, which was part taken by Babylon. So they come from Babylon. And so that's how Daniel meets up with them is because they're in Babylon when he's in Babylon. And when Nebuchadnezzar, and Ezra has a dream, the Magi were known to interpret the dream. And so they call the Magi, the Magi can't interpret the dream. Nebuchadnezzar is about to kill them all. And Daniel says, hold up, I'll interpret the dream. And so we see them. And then they have Daniel's prophecy of when the Messiah would be born, which Daniel prophesied over 500 years, exactly, um, you know, to the season, to the time when Christ would actually be born. And so this is, this is where the Magi come and this is, this is where they come from. And then their response to the birth of the King is to travel and worship at his feet. And what I like about the text, what I like about it is it says, and I understand, just listen, I understand what the text says and being divinely warned in a dream, they departed a different way, but let's just, let's just look at it kind of in a way figuratively or Let's look at it kind of as an analogy, if you will. They came to worship and then they left a different way than they came. And I thought, that's, that's how you know you've worshiped. When you leave a different way than you came. That's how you know when you've come to adore a king. Because when you come to worship a king and, and adore a king, he's going to change your life. And so I thought about these responses. Here's this acknowledgement. Here's this admiration, but here's this adoration that causes them to leave differently the way in which they, they came. And so three things I want to write, write these down. This is three points about, about these magi, about the wise men. Number one, what we learn from watching them is his lordship over your life is evidenced by his influence on your life. His lordship over your life is evidenced by his influence on your life. What we see is this intentional pursuit. I want you to understand, you know, I don't want to bust your nativity up, but, but the, the wise men weren't there the night Jesus was born. If you just read the text, they came to a house to see a child, not a cave to see a baby. So it's probably two years after some, most theologians have settled on around two years after Jesus was born. They come to the house, they, they found it. But I want you to see this intentional pursuit because the star appeared when he was born. They spent two years trying to track him down. The journey from Mesopotamia to where Jesus was would have been 300 miles or more. So they've traveled over 300 miles, right? And, and they've spent two years trying to find him. And more than that, really, technically, they've spent 500 years looking for the sign of his birth that, that Daniel talks about, that Balaam talks about. And so they were intentionally pursuing him. And so Christ, before he was even born, was influencing all of their life. Their life was organized and ordered around the birth of a Savior. And I thought, that, that to me is adoration. Is when we seek first the kingdom of God. They were seeking first the king before the king ever said, seek first the kingdom. Are you with me? And I thought, how many times are we guilty of wanting God to organize his life and kingdom around our life? 
And we will actually say, you know, we come to God when we need something, want something, want Him to do something, need Him to work something out. And ultimately, when we don't have time to worship, we don't worship. When we're too tired, we just don't go to church. When we don't feel like we have enough, we just don't give. And, and when, it's, when, when the truth of the matter is, we worship when it's convenient. We worship when we feel like it. And, and in a way, if we're not careful, we'll be, but we're still asking God to do what? And it's like we're trying to get the king to order his life around us. But the wise men ordered their life around him. They were seeking a king. They were searching for him. They, they went on a 300-mile dangerous journey to try to find him. And I thought, this is adoration. is, is when, when I say he's Lord, you need to see the influence of his lordship in every part of my life. Like to say he's Lord but yet find no fruit of the influence of him in my life, then I need to admit I'm not being honest. Jesus said this way, why do you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say? And my thought was, man, they came to worship a king. They came to adore a king. They came and fell down at the feet of a Lord. They organized their lives. And then I thought about this. I love Jeremiah 29, 13. Most people know 29, 11, 29, 13. Most people also know, but it says, you'll seek me and find me. It's a promise. You'll seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. And I thought about this, how the wise men sought after the king and how they traveled that 300 miles and how they looked for him for years. And, and I thought about this I thought about how God brought them to him. Now, we know there was a star, and, and a lot of people say it was a star, and history says the planets aligned about this time, and that could be it. My personal theory is it was an angel. Because the book of Revelation calls angels stars. And in the text we just read, it says, and the star went. Stars don't went. <laughs> And, and, and so the truth of the matter is, I think an angel was guiding them. But I thought about how when we set our hearts to seek God, he will guide us to himself. And what I loved about this is not only they found him, but they left a different way. And I love this also because you have to think about this. They have prophecies from Balaam and they have prophecies from Daniel, right? We know maybe they had some of the other writings from Isaiah. We, we don't know or Micah, maybe not. But we know they, they offer those prophecies in the star. They come to Jerusalem to look for the king, but he's not in Jerusalem. He's in Bethlehem. So then they have to be told about the prophecy from Micah that says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And then they take off to Bethlehem. My point is that they're seeking God, but they're not having an encounter with God. God is not speaking to them. They're having to learn through prophecies. They're having to learn through the Jews. But look at this. As soon as they fall down and worship him, the Bible says being divinely warned in a dream, all of a sudden God speaks to them. 
And I thought, isn't that true that, that so many times we think, I can't find God. God is far away. I feel alone. I don't feel like he's with me. And what I say is, no, 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 no. If you seek him and search for him with all your heart, he longs to reveal himself to you. He wants to make himself known. And if you'll set your face and your heart to trust and follow and search for him, he'll reveal himself and he will even speak to you in ways he's never spoken to you before. He wants to be your Lord. And if you'll make him your Lord, he will influence all of your life. He will give you wisdom and guidance. He'll show you the path to take. He will speak to you about who you are. He, he, he wants to reveal. And second thing was, I, I saw this with the wise men, that his worth to us is seen in our worship of him. His worth to us is seen in our worship of him. I love this because it said they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. They, 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 they worshiped enthusiastically. In fact, verse 11, this is where we get the, the Christmas carol or Christmas hymn, Oh, come let us adore him. It's actually from Matthew 2, verse 11, where it says, And when they had come into the house, they fell down and worshiped him. The word fell down there, I said, you might want to underline that. It means to cast down, to throw down and break is actually the, the literal translation. Um, <clears throat> in other words, they threw themselves at the feet of Jesus. They threw themselves. Now, you got to think about this because I don't have time to tell you everything I could tell you and you don't want to hear it anyway. And so, but, but think about this. They're coming to a two-year-old boy. And throwing themselves at his feet. I remember having two-year-old boys. <laughs> Toddlers. Right? I never thought of throwing myself at their feet. But they walk into a house to see a two-year-old little boy. And they throw themselves at the feet of him who has been born. King of the Jews. And I thought about the word worship. And I thought about the meaning of the word worship because we actually get the word worship from the word worth. It's actually, worship is actually worth-ship. And I thought about the, the expression of what we believe God is worth to us is really seen by how we worship Him. And that's what I saw with, with the wise men. Herod didn't worship at all. No, he just wanted to kill him. But the wise men came and threw, threw themselves down at his feet. And, and that's where I thought our, our, his worth to us is seen in our worship of him. Because that's what, what the wise men worshiped him based on what they believed he was worth to them. And, and the truth of the matter is, we know what we're worth to God. Do you know what you're worth to God? John 3.16 tells you what you're worth to God. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would have eternal life through Jesus Christ, right? So you know what you're worth to God. And if you didn't know that, that's what you're worth. You're worth the blood of his son. If it had just been you, he would have given his son for you. And so God, by the gift that he gave, has established our value. He's established your value. 
I always say things are worth whatever, wherever money changes hands. Like if you're in business, you're selling something, or if you're just selling a car or, or you know, an ATV or something like that, and someone comes, you can price it however you want. The values determine when money changes hands. Well, we know where money changed hands for you. We know the price that was paid for you, and that was Jesus. You may or may not believe that, but it doesn't change your value because God determined and set your value. And you may look in the mirror and say, I don't think I'm worth that. It doesn't matter what you think because we know where money changed hands at. We know where the blood was spilled and what it was poured out for. It was poured out for you. And it was his blood, his precious, the blood of his son. So God's established your value. So God's gift for us, to us, tells us our worth to him. And I thought, I think in, in like manner, our worship to him expresses what we feel like he's worth to us. How do you worship a king? What's his value to you? And I thought about the, the Mary who comes to worship at the feet of Jesus and he's sitting in the house of Simon. It's the same picture, really. Maybe you never put the two together. But Jesus is at Simon's house. He's a Pharisee. He's, he's a religious guy. And he's not, he, he, he may, he's acknowledging Jesus. He might even be admiring Jesus, but he is not adoring Jesus. And this woman comes in to adore him. And she begins washing his feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair. Now, here's two people that are worth the same thing. Simon and Mary worth the same thing. The same price will be paid for them both. And Jesus decides to give a riddle to Simon saying, and I'll give you a short version. One man owed $10. One man owed $10 million. They were both called in and forgiven their debts. One forgiven $10. One forgiven $10 million. Which do you think was the more grateful? And Simon said, well, I guess the one that was forgiven the most. And Jesus said, you've said right. And then he points to this woman. Now, what Simon didn't catch on to, I don't think, or if he did, he didn't let on to it is, what Jesus is saying is, everyone owes $10 million. It's just some people think they owe $10. And because they only think they owe $10, they worship $10 worth. But some people know their worth is $10 million, And they'll worship $10 million worth. That's why when we have worship and someone wants to lift their hands, I'm like, gone. Someone wants to lay on the floor, I don't care because I'm not going to tell you how to worship your king because I'm not going to sit at the table of a Pharisee and say, you know what, let me tell you that he's not worth that. No, he's worth whatever you can give him. He's worth however you want to worship him. He is worth bowing. He is worth lifting your hands. He is worth crying. He is worth kneeling. Are you with me? He is worth it because he is king. And I want my worship to be the evidence of his lordship. I want his influence in my life to be clearly seen because he is my Lord. I want his worth 
to be clearly noted by me and established by me that he is worth everything to me because he has done everything for me. Um, here's, the, here's the third thing. What we bring to him reveals what we believe about him. What we bring to him reveals what we believe about him. I, I love this because not only did they, they pursue him intentionally, not, not only did they give, worship exuberantly or um, excitedly, um, but they also gave extravagantly. They gave, it, it says verse 11, and when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, I, I like it because one version says they opened their treasury. So more than likely, this was not just three men. In fact, it's highly likely it was not three men. Um, these were devout men. They were valuable men. If they were important men is what I'm trying to say. And they wouldn't travel 300 miles, just three men on a camel with a bunch of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, instead, the way this would have been done is it would have been an entourage, essentially. It, they would have had bodyguards. They would have had a small delegation given for their protection because they were valuable to the Medes and the Persians, right? And so, so they were valuable men. And so more than likely, and by the way, Herod wouldn't have been intimidated by three men on camels rolling into town saying, hey, you've seen the king of the Jews. <laughs> but if a delegation of hundreds of people show up, like Prince Ali coming into, right, to, on Aladdin. Are you with me? Prince Ali. Da, da, da. Got it? Like big fanfare. That was probably how this looked. Like they were probably announced as they were coming into town. They had a delegation of soldiers for their own safety. But not only that, they had a treasury. Each of them had, would have had a treasury with them. And the treasury was to finance their trip coming and going home. So we don't know if they intended to give or not. Probably they intended to give something. But what this text implies is when they fell at his feet, they opened and gave their entire treasury. Which actually finances Mary and Joseph's trip to Egypt because they have to go on the run to protect Jesus. Right? But they opened their treasury and they gave him these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And I love the gifts because the gifts are emblematic. They're emblematic of who he was. In other words, as they are worshiping, what they bring to him actually reveals who he is. Let me show you. Number one, they bring him gold, which back then was the most precious of metals. Now we have rhodium and platinum. But, but gold back then was, was the, the, the most precious. It was the metal of kings. It meant wealth or royalty. And, and, and in antiquity, the custom would have been that if you went to visit a king, you took gold. You may not have a lot of it, but you take what you have because you're saying, no, 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 I acknowledge that you're royalty. I acknowledge that you're a king. And so here is the gold. You may present other things with it, but you offer gold. And so they brought to him, it says, gold. And by bringing to him gold, they were saying, you're a king. But in falling down, and in worshiping and presenting him gold, they were saying, you're our king. See, the question today, remember, acknowledge, admire, adore. I'm not asking if you think he's a king. I'm asking, is he your king? Because you can admire him as a king. You can acknowledge that he is a king. But if he's your king, you'll adore him. You'll fall down before him. You'll worship him. And so they were bringing him gold saying, you're 
the king. And then they brought him frankincense. Now, frankincense is, is, a, is a particular resin from a particular tree in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, it, it's highly prized, highly sought after, very valuable. It's, uh, we see it referenced 17 times in Scripture. And almost every time it is referenced, um, it is an indication or it points to priest or priesthood. And so they bring him frankincense, which is sacred. It's used in, it's like a perfume. Um, it's used in offerings. In fact, Leviticus 2 is used in the meal offering, which was given in Thanksgiving. And God's response to this frankincense being given in this offering was, he said, it arose as a sweet smelling fragrance. By the way, this is the same inference, the same picture that Paul gives when he's talking to the Philippians about their gift to the ministry. He's saying it was, a, it was a, the aroma of that fragrance, the aroma that offering was pleasing to God, he says. And so frankincense, always mentioned, used by priests in worship, an aroma that rises to God, but it was used for priests and by priests, sacred in the worship of God. And I thought about the significance of what we give to him reveals what we believe about him. Well, they believed he was a king, but they also believed he was a priest. In fact, Hebrews calls him the great high priest. Eleven times in the book of Hebrews, he's referred to, Jesus is referred to as the great high priest. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, it says this, and every priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, but they can't take away sin. But this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for all sins, sat down at the right hand of God. The high priest, why is he the high priest? Because he did perfectly what the other priest could never do permanently. Are you with me? He gave an offering that not just covered sin, cleansed sin. And that's why he sat down. The reason they couldn't sit down is because their offerings couldn't remove sin, couldn't take away sin, couldn't cleanse sin. It was a system that covered sin year by year. But Jesus offered one sacrifice for all sin, for all mankind, one time. And then it says he sat down where he is still seated. Because why? The work was finished. Sin was paid for. And here's the thing. Today, even if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, even if you have never surrendered your throne to his throne, if you will, even if that's never happened, here's what you need to know. He's already paid for your sin. If you choose to follow him, he doesn't have to pay for your sin. It's already paid for. Salvation is not where we ask him to pay for our sin. Salvation is the faith that says you've already paid for it. That by his grace, he's paid for all sin. The sin you'll commit tomorrow, the sin you committed yesterday, any sin, someone born today, commit sin tomorrow, it is all paid for by this great high priest who is now at the right hand of God. The Bible says interceding because priests represent people to God. And he is representing us. He is the mediator, the Bible says, of this covenant of grace which is a covenant that says you don't have to work for it, earn it. You don't have to achieve it. I've paid. The work is finished. You just receive it by faith. He's our priest. And then they brought him this third gift, myrrh. Myrrh is a bitter herb, a bitter herb. It actually gets its origin from Mount Moriah where Abraham was about to sacrifice his son Isaac in obedience to God's word. 
And, and in, in the Hebrew, the, the first part of more in Moriah is, is what they used to create the word myrrh. And, and so it's this bitter herb, and it, it is always indicative or, or resembles every time sacrifice. Sacrifice. And I thought, how fitting that Jesus, who was born to be a sacrifice for us, was offered myrrh at his birth and offered myrrh at his death. On the cross, he was offered wine mixed with myrrh, Mark 16. And it's, 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 it represents, it's symbolic of the fact that he was born to be a sacrifice for us. And then here are the gifts of the wise men. Because what you bring to him reveals what you believe about him. And here are their gifts to say, we believe he's king. We believe he's priest. And we believe he's a sacrifice. And when you believe he's a king, and when you believe he's a priest, and when you believe he's the sacrifice, how do you respond to that? How do you respond to that? Because the way they respond was not to acknowledge, not to admire, but to adore. To throw themselves, to throw all of their life at the feet of Jesus. To open their treasury and give to him all that they had. Why? Because he's their king. Because he's their priest. And because he's their lamb. He's their sacrifice. And I thought about today, like how do you worship a king? How do you respond to that? How does the world respond to this gift? How do I respond to this gift? How do we respond to this gift?